0: Well, as we gather for God's word this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our loving Father, we beseech you this morning asking that you would please meet us in this hour as you already have so richly, reminding us of who you are and what you've done for us in the gospel. But now as we seek to learn from your word, to hear you speak from the pages of Holy Scripture, we ask that you would please Enable our hearts to humbly receive what you have for us today. Would you teach us what we need to learn? And would you help us to live according to it? We ask this in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Well, as Americans, I think it's safe to say that one of our uh, cultural idols is the idol of comfort. We want things to be as comfortable as possible. We design our homes this way. We buy our vehicles with increasing levels of comfort. They seem to come up with new ways to be comfortable. I didn't know that I needed that comfort, but they found a way to make me comfortable in that new way. And we find that all over the place. We find it in our vacations. We go to places and, ooh, this room has a feature that I didn't know that, I, again, I needed, but it's nice now that I have it. We love our comfortable foods, right? We talk about our, our foods that are our, our comfort eats, and uh, wherever we look, we, we find features where we want to make ourselves more comfortable. We like what feels good, plain and simple. Now, this is quite natural to the human experience. We turn away from what's difficult, and we turn to what's easy. We turn to what's comfortable, but... Our love of comfort means that we are often unprepared for adversity. We are taken off guard when difficulty, when hard things come our way because we are so prone to look for and to enjoy and to stay in the lane of comfort. And unfortunately, as American Christians, the same can be true in our Christian lives. We can fail to remember that as followers of Christ, we will face opposition and suffering in this life. The life of the Christian is not a guaranteed one of comfort and ease. And so we're often unprepared for these difficulties because we simply don't like adversity. We don't like difficulty. And we don't like to think about it either. We would rather just think about happy thoughts, positive things in our future, and not have to think about what might be difficult around the bend. But the Bible does not allow us, the church, to stay in such a dream world. Over and over again, it prepares us for adversity and for difficulty. And our passage this morning is one of those sections of Scripture. And so I invite you to take out your personal copy of God's holy and inspired Word and turn to Luke chapter 22 this morning if you're not there already. Luke chapter 22. This rich chapter that we are dropping into this morning is uh, a section in which we find Jesus with His uh, disciples on the night before His crucifixion. He has already in these hours with His disciples instituted the Lord's Supper as He ate the last Passover meal with these men and then transformed it into the ordinance of communion or the Lord's table. He has already then revealed Judas to be the betrayer that he was and sent him out of the room to go do his his betraying. And he has already, as we've seen, taught his disciples of what the essence of Christian leadership is. He's taught them that Christian leadership is not primarily or is not at all about self-promotion, but rather is about service of others. And now, after teaching on these things, he turns his attention to preparing these men for the adversity that lies ahead, adversity which they will face in just an hour or so, a couple hours ahead and in the days ahead. They will face opposition. They will go through a trial of their faith, and they need to be ready for it. And the same is true for us. We have trials We have adversity that faces us in the days ahead, and we need to be ready. We need to be prepared. Opposition to our faith is part and parcel of the Christian life. Living for Christ in this world is not easy, nor is it unobstructed. We face opposition wherever we turn. And yet, church, this should not discourage us. We have all the resources that we need to weather these storms. We have all that we need to to get through this adversity by what we have in Christ. In him and him alone, we have the example to follow. We have the strength to pull from. We have the security to rest in. And so let's look at how Jesus prepared his disciples for adversity as we read our text, Luke chapter 22, and we're going to read verses 31 to 38 this morning. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 31. It says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, The rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this Scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Well, this morning, as we look at these verses before us, we're going to learn how Jesus prepares us for adversity in our Christian life by looking at how Jesus prepared his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. And in particular, we're going to see that Jesus prepared them for two forms of adversity. There were two forms of adversity that he prepared his disciples for, and this will be instructive for us. First, he prepared his disciples for sifting in trials. He prepared them for sifting in trials. This is the first form of adversity, and we see it in verses 31 through 34. In this few verses, we see here Jesus is predicting Peter's denial of Jesus, and this is recounted in one form in each of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and here in Luke. (coughs) Now, I believe that what is recounted in the other gospels and what is recounted here as actually two separate predictions. Here, it's clear that they are still in the upper room. They will... Uh, leave the upper room in verse 39. And so here they are still seated there in the upper room and Jesus is making this prediction of Peter denying him. In the other gospels, they have already left the upper room. They're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane when there is another exchange. And so I believe that the gospels show that Jesus predicted Simon's betrayal twice Two times that Simon should have gotten the lesson, and yet two times his pride and arrogance got in the way, and he ended up having to learn a painful lesson. But here in our text, here in Luke 31 through 34, we see that Jesus prepares his disciples for sifting in the midst of trials, and he, does the, he prepares them for this sifting in four ways. The first way he prepares for this sifting is, number one, he, pre- he warns, Of the spiritual attack he warns of the spiritual attack and we see this in verse 31 it's here that he reveals the problem Simon Simon behold Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat just two verses prior Jesus had reassured the disciples that they are gonna sit on thrones and they're gonna rule in his future kingdom but here he turns the tide and begins to pull the view rather than looking through the telescope out into the future. He pulls that away and looks into the immediate future and says, Simon, there is a trial that is coming and Satan is intimately involved. He desires your downfall. The double address of Simon's name here, you'll notice, he says, Simon, Simon. This indicates not only his care for Simon uh, uh, an intimacy, but there's also a sobriety. When our parents had to repeat our name, we know that there's, we need to listen up. We need to realize that there's something important they're about to say. And the same is true here. Simon, Simon. Similar to how he addressed Martha in chapter 10. Martha, Martha. When she was busy about many things. But we see here that his words are directed to Simon. But what we can uh, miss here is that there's an, an indication that, that it's also addressed in some sense to all the disciples. Clearly, Simon's name is mentioned here twice, and Jesus says he prays for him. But what we miss in the English is, and, and, and the, the English Standard Version has, has footnoted this, that the "you" that's used twice in verse 31 is plural. And so if we were to translate it with that plurality in mind, it would say something like this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have all of you that he might sift all of you like wheat. And so, there's, Jesus is revealing here that Satan's desires was more than just Simon. Satan's desires was to all of the disciples. He wanted to sift them like wheat. But what does that mean, sift them like wheat? We don't typically talk that way or use terminology like that, and we don't sift our own wheat on a daily basis, so we're somewhat removed from the, the, the practice of sifting wheat. Well, this is simply the the process of separating the grain from the chaff. When it was plucked off of the wheat, they had to pull out the pure grain and separate it from the husk. And so this process was a violent one in which there was a, a throwing up of the grain as the chaff was then blown away as the grain would then fall to the ground. And while it's used in some ways in scripture to describe trying to purify, Here, Satan is doing this, and I believe that there's a a reference here to the violent action of Satan in which he wants to separate the disciples from Jesus. I think he wants to uh, bring about spiritual ruin to Jesus' men. He wants to pick them apart, leave them in pieces, as it were. He wants to sift them like wheat. And this sifting would happen very shortly. Within the next few hours, there was to be the traumatic event of the crucifixion. And this crucifixion of Christ would be the trial of their lives, the trial of the lives for these men. And Satan wanted to exploit that trial. Now, I believe the reason Jesus addressed Simon in particular and focused on him is because Peter would be the target of Satan's most intense attacks, his fiercest attacks, Because Peter was seen as a leader of the 12. We've already seen through the ministry of Jesus how he was a spokesman for the disciples. He was part of the inner inner circle of Jesus' disciples that got to be exposed to certain aspects of ministry that others didn't. And we see even through the early chapters of Acts that Peter had a leadership role there in the early church. And so this word from Jesus here should have been, I repeat, should have been, a sober warning for Peter, a serious warning to him, a wake-up call to hear that Satan, the enemy of God, has Peter's number and is desiring to attack him specifically should have sent chills down his spine. The situation is similar to Job, you'll remember, that story in the Old Testament where Satan had to go to God in the courtrooms of, of heaven, the throne room of heaven, and request permission to be able to afflict Job. In both cases, they, uh, Satan has to ask permission. Here, Satan has asked permission or kind of demanded permission to be able to do what he wants to do, to carry out his wicked designs. In both cases, here as well as in Job, uh, God shows his sovereignty over Satan. Satan is indeed God's enemy, but get this, he's not God's equal. The idea that there's God and there's Satan, there's yin and there's Yang, and they're both equal powers is, is a falsehood. It's nowhere taught in the Bible. God is the supreme ruler and authority of all. Satan is a created being. He only has his power because God has granted it to him. And he will only have it as long as God allows him to have it. And when God desires to destroy Satan, he will do so. And so Satan, being a created being, is subservient to God and his sovereignty. And the same is true today, friends. Satan is not sovereign. Uh, he is not omnipresent. He can't be in all places at once. He's a created being, and therefore he is constrained by that. He does not get to do whatever he wants. He only gets to do what God allows him to do in this age. And yet he is very active in this age, isn't he? The very apostle who is uh, of the focus of the attacks of Satan here in this passage desired that when he wrote to the churches that were under his care, he wanted to warn them that Satan was not asleep, that Satan was still active and that they needed to be aware. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says that Satan roams around as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Again, that's this is a personal warning from Simon Peter, who experienced the very attacks of Satan, is now writing to the church abroad and saying, you need to be watching out because Satan is still active. He's looking to disrupt the, the faith of the saints. And this is why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, to the Corinthian church, he says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. There is a real danger for us today, for us to be led astray, for the attacks of Satan and his demons to lure us away. As the church in the 21st century, the idea of Satan and demonic attack might seem far-fetched in our sophisticated world. But we need to take our cues from the Scriptures And Ephesians chapter six is very clear that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our enemy is not other people, our enemy is the demonic forces. Our enemy, our battle is against Satan and his dark spiritual forces in heavenly places. Satan and his demons are always scheming to sift us. He wants to separate us from Christ. He wants us to fall away. He wants to cause us to doubt God's goodness to renounce our trust in Him, and for us to find greater joy and satisfaction in the things of this life than in God and His Word. Now, I don't believe that any one of us here today are a big enough target for Satan to warrant him from roaming across the whole globe to focus on any one of us in particular. Again, as I said, Satan is not omnipresent, He is a created being. He's limited at one place, but he's got many helpers. He's got fallen angels to do his bidding, and they are active around the globe. And so we we would do well to hear Jesus' warning to Peter here in verse 31 and and see it as a reminder for us to be vigilant in our own lives as well, be vigilant in our spiritual battle, to be reminded that there is indeed a spiritual battle and a spiritual enemy that is attacking us and the church, He's attacking our faith. Satan wants to erode our faith in the God of the Bible. As we sit week in and week out under the word of God, as we hear it in our homes, as we read it it privately, he wants us to begin to doubt whether this is truly true. He wants to draw men and women away from fidelity in marriage. He wants us to, to destroy the home, to destroy the family, to destroy marriages. And so he's constantly seeking to lure us away to be distracted, to erode that bond within marriage. He wants to allure young people away from Christ, away from the church that they would instead be lured into the pleasures of this world. Satan wants to see the church torn apart by pride and arrogance. He wants us to be so self-concerned about our own hobby horses and our own preferences that we would be willing to offend and to criticize and to destroy a fellow brother or sister in Christ. He wants to see us simply stop fighting the fight of faith, to get lulled into the easy flowing stream of the world and to to simply live a life of ease and self-indulgence Believers, do you sense these temptations? Have you at some time felt this pull upon your own heart? We must be watchful and vigilant, but we need not be fearful. Yes, there is an enemy, but we have everything we have in Christ in order to stand against the schemes of the devil. We can stand firm in the strength of his might, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. But particularly here, what we see in this text is that one of the resources that we have in order to be able to stand in Christ is the fact that we have a Savior who is praying for us. And so we've seen first here that Jesus prepares his disciples for the sifting and trials by first warning of spiritual attack, but secondly, he prepares them by praying for spiritual strength. He prays for spiritual strength. This is the second way that he prepares him for the sifting. Jesus quickly reassures Peter. He tells him that Satan wants to sift them like wheat. But then look what he says in verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Satan wants the disciples. But Jesus quickly steps in to defend his own. And there's a couple of amazing realities we see in this text. The first is that we see that, did you realize that Jesus is aware of Satan's request? This, I believe, points to the divinity of Christ. Who else knows what Satan has demanded from God? Nobody. Jesus is truly God and truly man. He alone has counsels with the Father. This is extra special, extra human knowledge, No mortal would have this level of access to the throne room of God, and yet Jesus knows. But secondly, we see that Jesus' ministry of intercession is in action here. His ministry of intercession. And this is a ministry of Christ that I think the church too often neglects. He prays for his people. He here says he has prayed specifically for Peter. I noted how in verse 32, the the U's are plural. Well, here he switches to singular in verse 32, saying Peter, Simon Peter, I've prayed specifically for you. And what does he pray for? Notice he doesn't pray that the circumstances would change. He doesn't pray that, that this trial would go away. He prays that in the midst of the trial, that his faith would not fail. Jesus doesn't shield us from the difficulty. Rather, his request is that our faith would remain strong in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the testing. Whether in that moment or later on, most likely when Peter was later weeping, recognizing what he had done when he denied Christ, I have to imagine that these words from Christ must have been a balm for his soul. To know that the Savior that he has just denied was praying for him and gives him the assurance that his faith would not ultimately crumble, his faith would not fail. He had the assurance from the lips of his Lord and Savior that he, Peter, would have the power of the Messiah working on his behalf that the almighty Messiah who had calmed the waves, who had raised the dead, who had healed the lepers, was working to keep Peter, that his faith would not fail. His faith would indeed falter, but it wouldn't ultimately fall away. He would commit a major failure, but it would not be permanent. He would not go the way of Judas. He would be held by the sovereign and loving power of his Savior. And so, From this church, we learn that Christ is indeed also praying for us. And you say, well, that was just Peter. He's one of his apostles. He got the special treatment. No, we are all his saints. We all get the special treatment. As J.C. Ryle has put it, what he, Jesus, did for Peter, when Peter knew nothing of his danger, he is daily and hourly doing for all who believe in his name. This is the promise that we have Church, And we know this from the scriptures. It teaches elsewhere that Jesus is praying for us. And so I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, so you can see this yourself. In this great chapter in which we receive assurance of what we have in Christ, Paul, the Apostle Paul draws our attention to the intercessory work of Jesus on our behalf. Look in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us. Folks, Paul wants us to recognize that we have every reason to be assured of our salvation because who can bring a charge against us? Can Satan bring a charge? No, because it's God who justifies. He's the one that declares us righteous in Christ. No one can penetrate that. And, and who is to condemn us? Well, no one can. Because we have a Savior, a Savior who died, but more than that, he says, was raised and is now ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. And what is he doing up there? Is he sitting up there twiddling his thumbs? No. He says he's actively interceding for us. He continues to do all that we need in order for us to be saved. He continues to support us. He continues to intercede on our behalf that we would continue to be faithful in this life. Now, Hebrews 7 verse 25 makes a very similar point. It says this, consequently, he, being Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Friends, we have a savior who is interceding on our behalf. He is praying to the Father for us. And so we need to take this to heart. Jesus has not abandoned us. He, yes, he has ascended to heaven, and he's not with us physically, but he has sent his spirit that we might know that he is with us, even to the end of the age. He does not leave us to fight our own spiritual battles on our own. We don't have to fight Satan and the demons in our own strength. He is interceding for you, praying that your faith may not fail. In fact, this is the only reason. If you will make it to the end, this is the only reason that you will make it to the end. It's because Jesus is upholding you, Jesus is praying for you. J.C. Ryle writes this He says, The continued existence of grace in a believer's heart is a great standing miracle. His, the believers, enemies are so mighty, and his strength is so small. The world is so full of snares, and his heart is so weak that it seems at first sight impossible for him to reach heaven. The passage before us explains his safety. He has a mighty friend at the right hand of God, whoever lives to make intercession for him. There is a watchful advocate who is daily pleading for him, seeing all his daily necessities and obtaining daily supplies of mercy and grace for his soul. His grace never altogether dies because Christ always lives to intercede. Isn't that a comforting truth? Isn't that sweet to remember that we stand only because of the work of Christ and he intercedes for each one of us each and every day? And so we need to find comfort that in the midst of the spiritual battle, in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the temptations, we have a Savior who's standing with us and is praying for us each and every day. So we've seen that Jesus is preparing his disciples for the sifting by first, warning them of spiritual attack, secondly, praying for spiritual strength, but now, thirdly, he exhorts to spiritual ministry. He exhorts to spiritual ministry. And we see this in the second half of verse 32, flipping back to Luke 22, after saying that he has prayed for them, prayed for him, rather, middle of verse 32, it says, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus says that Peter's faith won't fail. It won't ultimately be destroyed, even though it will stumble. But Jesus knows that Peter will come back. He's going to repent. This word for turned is a word used for repentance elsewhere in the scriptures. And so after Peter's failure of denying Christ. He needed to repent and turn back to Christ. And that's exactly what would happen, as we'll see later on. But when he comes back, is Jesus gonna put him on the sideline? Is Peter destined to the bench because he's failed so miserably? No. In fact, Jesus exhorts him so that he doesn't get any ideas about sitting anything out. No, Peter, you got work to do, and in fact, I want you to strengthen your brothers. When he comes back, he has a place for ministry. In fact, he's not even given an option. He's commanded to minister. You need to to go about strengthening. And this means they need to strengthen their faith. And I believe that Peter will be in a unique position to strengthen their faith. Why? Because he himself had his weakness of faith revealed. He knows what it's like to be exploited with weak faith. And so he's uniquely able to go in and strengthen and say, listen, do not be deceived thinking that you have the strength to stand. No, find your strength in the Lord. And this is what we see through the rest of the New Testament, exactly what Peter did. He strengthened the church through godly leadership in the early chapters of Acts, through bold preaching, and through what we have, his pastoral letters. He strengthens us. He continues to strength the brothers, strengthen the brothers and sisters through what he wrote. Now, Peter, in this role of strengthening the brothers, he was not commissioned by Jesus to be the first pope. He was told simply to serve, to serve his brothers. And so like the captain of a team, he's to go down the sideline along the bench and encourage each person on the team to keep pressing on, to be strong and to press on ahead. And so I think from this exhortation that Jesus gives Peter, we learn an important lesson for us as well. And that is that even if we sin, and even if we sin in big ways, it doesn't mean that God is done with us. We may not be able to minister in the way that we did before, but we can still serve the church. And so let us never use our failure or our sin as an excuse for inaction for failure to minister. God has called each one of us to minister to the saints. God has gifted the church with unique gifts that we would use them to to serve others, to build up the church. And so if we find ourselves in sin, if you are in sin this morning, the call to you is to repent and to turn as the call was to Peter. But after you turn and after you repent, look to not sit on the sideline, but to serve the body of Christ. So Jesus prepares his disciples for the sifting by warning them, by praying for them, by exhorting them, and now thirdly or fourthly and finally, he prepares them for the sifting by prophesying of spiritual failure. He prophesies of spiritual failure in verses thirty-three and thirty-four. As I said earlier, in light of all Jesus said, Peter should have responded soberly and humbly to this word, to recognize that Satan had his number and was out to see that his faith would fail. But how does he respond? He responds arrogantly. Look at verse 33. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Now, this sounds bold. This sounds courageous, even in light of what we read earlier in Acts of Paul saying, I'm ready to go to Jerusalem and even to die for the sake of the name, it seems like Peter's standing right in line with that. But his statement reveals his arrogance in two ways. First, it shows that he has an overconfidence of his own strength. Peter haven't had an overconfidence of his own strength. He thinks. That with whatever will come, whatever Satan will volley at him, whatever trial may be there, he's going to be able to stand. He thinks he's ready to do anything for Christ. He thinks he's attained to a certain level to be able to stand. But secondly, he has an underestimation of the negative effect of the coming trial. He doesn't realize how heavy, how strong that tsunami will come. He doesn't realize how devastating this trial will be. It will severely test his allegiance to Christ. He thinks he's ready. I am ready, Lord, to go both to prison and to death. But then Jesus prophesies in verse 34 and utterly pulls the rug out from under Peter's argument. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. I, I find it amazing that it's not just that Peter's going to be weak, that Peter's going to kind of back off sheepishly. Peter is going to virtually flip sides. He's going he's to essentially do the exact opposite of what he said and not stand with Christ and deny that he even knows him. What we see here is an important note for all of us, that Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. We are often deluded into thinking of our own strength, but Jesus knows where we truly stand. And he prophesies that before the rooster crows this day, just in a matter of hours, Peter will deny that he knows Jesus three times. I'm sure the rest of the apostles will think, looking around going, really? I mean, we're like gearing up here, Lord. Peter's stoked, he's ready to go. There's no way that there's going to be a situation in just a matter of hours where he's going to deny that he knows you. I mean, we're still here. Judas is left. But Jesus says, Peter, you're going to fall hard. And in a few weeks, we'll see that the passage that's recounted later on in this chapter, that this prophecy comes true to the precise detail Jesus wants all the disciples again he's speaking there in the presence of all of them and to Peter and specifically to be prepared for the trial that's going to be coming in the intervening hours Jesus would be arrested he would be crucified and buried and Satan would use, seek to use this opportunity to attack and cause the disciples to defect he already had Judas at his grip but he wanted more he demanded for more he demanded that God would give him Peter and God would give all of them But Jesus would ultimately protect his own. Friends, sifting comes to us in our own trials as well, as we've said. Satan seeks to tempt, and that temptation often comes heavy and hard in the midst of our trials. When things in this life are difficult, that is when Satan wants us to defect. Satan wants us to doubt the goodness of God, wants us to doubt the promises of God, that we would seek to deny that we know Christ, to deny that Christ is able to do anything for us. And yet we must not make the same mistake as Peter. We must not trust in our own strength, be deluded into the thinking that we have the strength to stand. Instead, we must humbly and soberly look to Christ our Savior. He is in heaven interceding for us that our faith may not fail. And so I exhort you, trust in Christ. Trust in his intercession that he will see you through the temptation and the sifting in your trials. And if you find yourself in sin, turn, repent, And then look to be used for God's glory. And so this is, I believe, the first way that we can learn to be prepared for adversity. And that is seeing how Jesus prepared his disciples for sifting in trials. But there's a second way that Jesus prepared his disciples here that we need to look at this morning. And that is he prepared them not only for sifting in trials, but for suffering in ministry. He prepared them for suffering in ministry. And we see this in verses 35-38. Now, this paragraph, verses 35 to 38, is found nowhere else in the other Gospels. It's unique to Luke, and it has prompted no amount of uh, debate amongst Christians down through the centuries, but we'll seek to bring clarity to it this morning. Jesus begins, you'll see in verse 35, by reminding them of prior conditions. He says, verse 35, and I said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack, or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. And this is recounting about two years earlier when Jesus chose his 12 disciples to be his apostles. Apostle simply means to be a sent out one, and he sent them out to minister. And so I want you to briefly look back with me to Luke chapter nine so you can see this. Luke nine is probably longer than two years ago that we were in Luke nine, but nonetheless, Hope you to jog your memory. Luke chapter 9, just the first paragraph of this chapter, recounts what Jesus is talking about. It says, Luke 9, verse 1, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, say there and from there, depart. And wherever uh, they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them, and they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. This is what Jesus is referencing now in the upper room in Luke 22. You can flip back there. He sent them out, and he told them to take nothing with them. And the purpose there was that he was going to provide for them. Not only would he provide for his own, but they were going in the midst of Israel. They were ministering only in the cities of Israel, and therefore, their own countrymen would contribute. Remember, there were houses they were going to stay in. In those houses, they were going to, no doubt, receive provisions. There were going to be those that trusted in Jesus in those towns, and they would also provide these apostles with what they needed. And so Jesus asked them, when I sent you out, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. But look at verse 36. He says but now, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. The key words here are, but now in verse 36, the situation now is totally different. He's warning his disciples that things are about to change. The situation when I sent you out before, it's not going to be that way from here on out. Now they're going to need money and provisions Additionally, Jesus instructs them uh, to buy a sword. They're going to be uh, sent out amongst the world. They're going to be sent out to the nations. Jesus is preparing them to go into all the world. They're going to need provisions as they go. But he exhorts them to buy a sword. Now skip down to verse 38 with me. And it says, they, the disciples, said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, as I said, these verses have been the subject of much debate uh, over the history of the church, trying to understand what did Jesus mean by buying a sword, what did he want the disciples to actually do, and what did the disciples understand that he meant? The Catholic church argued in the Middle Ages that the two swords here referred to uh, a sword of the state and a sword of the church. In other words, the power to execute and the power to excommunicate. And they argued that both of those swords were given to the disciples, given to Peter, therefore given to the Catholic Church to execute uh, criminals as well as heretics and to excommunicate, so that the church holds both swords. And so this was justification for them to hire men to wage war for the sake of the church. But this is indeed a faulty interpretation. There's nothing of that found in this passage It's simply they found two swords and decided to decide what those two swords meant. Unfortunately, this faulty interpretation has led to much bloodshed down through the centuries in the name of Christianity. But more recently, in evangelical circles, the question surrounding these verses has revolved around whether Jesus is instructing his disciples to be literally armed in ministry or whether he is speaking metaphorically about being prepared for opposition. I lean towards the second interpretation that Jesus is speaking metaphorically here, that they are to be prepared for a new scene, the scene in which there is now opposition to their message. And there are four reasons why I say this. First is that there is no indication in the rest of the New Testament that Christ intended His apostles and His church to be an armed band of followers. There's no other verse that you can point to that says that, well, you see, Jesus here taught them to have swords because we see over here that he wanted them to fight back for them to uh, be able to um, have self-defense in the midst of persecution. There's no other verses that hint at anything of the sort, that hint at him wanting the disciples to be prepared with weapons. There's a second verse. Reason that I believe the metaphorical interpretation is accurate, and that is the example of the early church in the Book of Acts. The very men who heard these words—do we see them strapped with swords and taking the gospel uh, in a somewhat violent nature, or even in a uh, self-defensive nature as they face persecution? No. The Book of Acts is very clear that the early church was one that went, took the gospel forward in a non-violent way. When faced with persecution, they prayed. They did not fight back. They turned the other cheek. They did not organize into a fighting force in the name of Jesus Christ. Third reason I believe the metaphorical interpretation is accurate here is that a couple hours after this, these words were spoken, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter pulls out one of these swords. And he uses it at Jesus' defense. He goes, ah, the, the Roman cohort is coming to attack. Let's get them. And he lops off the ear of the servant of the high priest. But Jesus rebukes Peter strongly and heals the ear of that man. He says, that's enough, put the sword back. He rebukes Peter for even thinking of pulling that out. And so, I believe that this strong rebuke suggests that Jesus did not envision his men being weapon-wielding men in the cause of the gospel. The fourth reason I believe this, this interpretation is that, it's compare, that when we compare it with John chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus says this, my kingdom is not of this world, he's speaking to Pilate. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, and that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And so Jesus admits that under normal circumstances, his men would be fighting, but his way is different. What he was advocating is different. Now, with all that said, I do want to say a caveat here that I do believe it's permissible for Christians in this age to be armed for self-defense, and I don't have time this morning to go into a biblical rationale for that. That's, that's a time for another, another time, but um, I don't believe that this passage teaches the justification for Christians to be able to be armed in self-defense. This passage is saying something different. If Jesus were saying that physical swords were needed for self-defense for these men, then why would two swords be enough? I mean, these are 11 guys. Uh, He's going to send them out. You'd think they would all need their own self-defense. They would all need their own protection. You'd think him to say, well, you need nine more. But he doesn't say that. I believe that when the disciples say that they have two swords, it's showing that they've actually missed the point of what Jesus is saying. They're thinking literally, they're thinking physically, and they're missing the overall point that Jesus is trying to make. And so when Jesus says at the end of verse 38, it is enough, it is a Semitic way of basically changing the subject. Uh, We might say it today, enough of this. Or we might say, that's enough. He's ending the conversation. You guys don't get it. We're moving on. But the reason I think that we can take this is because of the hinge verse in verse 37. Verse 37, and because it's the reason that Jesus gives for the preparation, he links it to what he says in verse 37, Look, what's the first word in verse 37? It's for, he's given an explanation. Why does he ask them to, to uh, get these provisions and to get the sword and all these things? For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Now the emphasis in this verse is the fulfillment of Scripture, the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. It's, you'll, you'll note that it, that point is made before the quotation and after the quotation. Jesus is saying that God's plan that was prophesied from long ago is going to be fulfilled in me. And what particularly is he saying about that? Well, he quotes Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. And this is a significant quotation because this is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus specifically applies Isaiah 53 to himself. That great messianic chapter that prophesies of the suffering servant, of the Messiah that takes the sin of his people, this is the place where Jesus says, Yeah, that chapter is speaking about me. And I believe that in this reference, He's not just saying that this specific point was about him. He was basically saying that that chapter, that section, is about him. It's a section that began in Isaiah 52, verse 13, and runs all the way here to Isaiah 53, verse 12. The, quote, the verse Jesus quotes is the last verse of that passage, of section of Scripture, that servant song. Jesus is saying that he is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He is the one who takes on the sins of his people. He is the one who suffers on their behalf, who bears their sins, who is the substitutionary atonement for his people. They deserve to be be killed for their sins and yet he steps in and he bears the sins of many. And therefore, he is numbered with the transgressors. He is treated as a transgressor. Jesus says, quotes this, I believe, to make the point, that he is identified with sinners. He was crucified by sinners, he was crucified between two sinners, and ultimately was killed on behalf of sinners. And all of this fulfills God's plan. The great trial, the great crucifixion that's about to come, listen disciples, it's not going to disrupt God's plan, in fact, this is part of God's plan. This is part of the fulfillment of what God has set forth in ages past is that I must be numbered with the transgressors. I must bear the sins of many. God's will cannot be thwarted by the greatest evil. And this is what Jesus is saying. He wants his disciples to be prepared for suffering and opposition in their ministry because he himself experiences suffering in his own ministry. In other words, he's saying men listen, things are about to change. It's going to be different than it was the last three and a half years. You're now going to need to be prepared for opposition because I myself am being opposed to the point of death. I will suffer, and therefore you will too, and you need to be prepared for it. Of course, the story of the book of Acts is that these men did face much opposition. They did follow in the steps of a suffering Savior, and this has served as as an example of the church ever since. Suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life, as we said before. When we minister in Christ's name, we experience reproach, the reproach of Christ. And this should not surprise us. Peter, again, who is here on this night, listen to what he tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Church, we need this warning and this encouragement and this promise today. Following Christ brings suffering, and we should not be surprised by it. And the reason is that we follow a suffering Savior. But in this, Peter says that we are to rejoice and we are to be blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us in the midst of our suffering. As a church, let us take heart in these promises. Let us prepare for the suffering that attends ministry in the name of Christ. Let us be ready to suffer for the name of Jesus. Jesus wanted his disciples to be prepared for the spiritual testing that would be coming and the persecution be becoming their way. There would be opposition from Satan and opposition from an unbelieving world, and yet they have Christ. And this is our hope and confidence today as well. We have all we need in Christ to persevere in the face of adversity. We have Christ who intercedes for us that our faith would not fail. We have Christ who went to the cross for us so our sins would be forgiven. We have Christ who led the way in suffering so we can know we have a Savior who understands. In Christ, we have protection from whatever adversity comes our way. Amen? Amen. If you're here this morning and you don't know this Christ, I want to introduce him to you. And I'd love to speak with you after the service that you might know the security and the joy of knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this word this morning, this reminder that we can be prepared for adversity. It's helpful to be prepared to know that it's coming. It's helpful to know that we're not alone. That Jesus, you are there at the right hand of the throne of God and that you are actively praying on our behalf. You are beseeching God that we would stand strong, that our faith would not fail. And Father, I pray this morning for those who are here this morning that may be in the midst of trials themselves. Deep penetrating trials, in which their faith is faltering. Oh Lord, I pray that your word would encourage them this morning to look not to their own strength, but look to Christ, to find all the strength that they need, all the confidence that they need in him and him alone. And may you keep them. May you preserve them. And may you bring them through this, that they might strengthen their brothers and sisters. And we give you praise for all these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, we're going to be dismissed this morning, but before we do, I want to give you this benediction as you go. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, be grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May you know his grace and peace this week. You're dismissed.